Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Vetfolio Voice. For this episode, sponsored by PRN Pharmacal, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Platt to talk about seizures. It was such a relief to hear that even neurologists find definitively diagnosing and treating seizures challenging at times. But Dr. Platt put together some excellent guidelines for getting to the diagnosis, treating appropriately, communicating with pet owners. I'm telling you, I was furiously writing notes while he was speaking because I felt like there were so many gems I wanted to take back to practice with me. Dr. Simon Platt graduated from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He was an intern at the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph and completed a residency in neurology and neurosurgery at the University of Florida. Go Gators! He's currently a professor at the University of Georgia. Dr. Platt has authored or co-authored over 200 journal articles and 50 book chapters and is the co-editor of the BSAVA Manual of Canine and Feline Neurology and the Manual of Small Animal Neurological Emergencies. Dr. Platt is past president of the ACVIM Neurology Specialty and founder member of the Southeastern Veterinary Neurology Group in the USA. He currently serves as the editor-in-chief of the NAVC journal Today's Veterinary Practice. Dr. Platt was made a fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in 2018. And if you find as many gems in this podcast as I did, be sure to check out Dr. Platt's breakfast session at VMX, which I cannot believe is right around the corner. I hope to see you there. All right, so I'm here today talking to Dr. Simon Platt. Dr. Platt, thank you so much for joining me to talk about seizures. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk a little bit more about seizures because this is one topic where the presentation can be a little bit confusing and sometimes can be kind of hard to put your finger on. So let's kind of start with just the basics. What is a seizure? What does it look like? And what types of things need to occur for you to suspect that an event truly is a seizure? That is a great starting point because of the many frustrations that are related to seizure treatment, the lack of effect of drug sometimes may be traced all the way back to the start with our lack of confidence whether this is a seizure or not. I think we place a lot of reliance on what the owner is suggesting to us that happened. And sometimes their descriptions may be very clear and we're full of confidence that this is a seizure, but but otherwise we're going to need to to somehow dissect out the information they're providing us to, to improve on that confidence. And, and so starting with what is a seizure and what we should expect, we, we're looking for some abnormality of brain function that results in involuntary movement of the legs, potentially a loss or change of consciousness, and then sometimes some autonomic signs such as salivation, urination. We could simplistically split the brain up into three areas. We've got a motor area that's involved in the movement aspect of the body. We've got a sensory area, which is going to receive all of your sensations, hearing and uh, touch. Uh, smell. And then we're going to, then we've got an autonomic component as well that's responsible for, for the salivation, urination, heart rate aspects. Now, most of the time, the seizures that we think about are generalized seizures and they involve all three areas of the brain. So you'll have involuntary motor function, you'll have a change in, in awareness, a change of your sensory abilities of your brain, and then some autonomic dysfunction. That, that's the most common. But where we get into difficulty in knowing 
whether a certain characteristic is a seizure or not, are the focal seizures. They could just be one part of the brain, one of those three areas uh, that could involve a couple. So you may have involuntary motor function, maybe just of the lips or of one leg. leg. Uh, you could have that coupled with a slight change of, of consciousness or, or even just some salivation. And so sometimes that can be difficult for an owner to describe and could cross over with other type of, of activities that, that may be similar to, may appear similar to seizures, but do not respond to seizure medication, which is where we, where we can get into trouble. What other types of events might we see in our patients that could mimic a seizure, but aren't necessarily a seizure? If we consider a seizure as something which is sudden onset, so, so out of the blue and then short-lived and maybe is accompanied by a collapse or weakness, then we, we have to think about several uh, mimics of, of the seizures and, and probably the most common would be syncope. Um, we try to, to look at syncope as being a sudden onset event similar to seizures, although the major difference is that with syncope, you're often precipitated to collapse by activity. So you're often running around as some type of stressor on your cardiovascular system. It's often an, a flaccid collapse versus seizures in, being accompanied by some increase of tone in the limbs. And most of the time, or it, when it, it's short-lived, the dog will recover and there'll be only a very transient period of confusion and they're, they're back to normal. Whereas with seizure activity, there can be this post-ictal period where there's some confusion, maybe weakness, maybe visual disturbance as well. And so we try to look at those areas of the event, the precipitating event, the muscle tone and the post-ictal behavior to try and separate those out. Other mimics, it can include narcolepsy, where you've got a sudden onset of sleep, another flaccid collapse, and, uh, another event precipitated by excitement. And to the owner, it could just look like a seizure. They're, they're, they're not going to be aware of, of any difference when they wait, when the patient wakes up. They can snap out of it pretty quickly. So not really a post-ictal set of characteristics that they that they'll see. What we've seen over the last sort of 10 years or so with the advent of, of owners videoing these events on their phone and, and showing us is that there are some events called movement disorders that look very similar to seizures. Now, movement disorders are where you might move too much and you have a tremor disorder with a poster child for that in human medicine being Parkinson's disease or you move too little, which gets less press, but is equally debilitating. You get cramping episodes, which most commonly affect all limbs, can be sudden onset cramping episodes, accompanied then by a collapse as all of your limbs cramp up and can go on for a minute to several minutes. The key feature that differentiates it from a seizure is that they are wide awake, all their limbs are in a cramping situation. They may appear as they try to stand up as if they have involuntary movement. And as it, as it goes on, the owner is obviously concerned, maybe this is a seizure, but they can see that the patient is responsive to them. And that, that's a, a major characteristic which will help differentiate this from seizure activity. These movement disorders, again, won't really respond to anticonvulsants. So the more we treat them, because they're not responsive, uh, the more we're getting into this frustration of seizures are a nonstop drug game where, where we're just not getting any help 
and we start to think about euthanasia because the quality of life is not acceptable and a couple of other other events that we we should probably be aware of sometimes dogs will have vestibular collapses not really be be evidently vestibular in between the collapse but have a an onset of a vestibular collapse where they're wide awake but they'll also have uh, nystagmus and they may have a head tilt during the collapse may just last a couple of minutes then finally we should be aware of the compulsive behavioral abnormalities that could look like focal seizures. If you have a focal seizure as a person and it's a focal sensory seizure, you may see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there, uh, smell things that aren't there. And how that causes a dog or cat to respond, we have no idea, but that will obviously result in some behavioral change. And we may interpret that as a seizure or a compulsive behavioral abnormality, something such as, as stalking imaginary prey. Is that a seizure? Is that a behavioral abnormality? So those focal abnormalities that we described can be really confusing. And so we have to consider behavioral disorders as being one of the mimics then of, of seizures. I appreciate that answer so much because syncope and vestibular were definitely on my radar, but you know, I've definitely been in that position with my patient in the exam room where I'm going, well, it sounds like a seizure, but not totally, but what are the other things that it can be? And that can be, you know, a real challenge to come up with a list of differentials. So I think that was a great list that'll help a lot of us in the exam room when we're trying to differentiate these things. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that we shouldn't feel under pressure to immediately ascribe a, a name to it, that this is a seizure or this is a movement disorder. If if it's not feeling comfortable to us, then we can always ask the owner for a video. Most of them will have something or can easily get it, even though these events are unpredictable. And that can help you be a little bit more comfortable that you have you have one of these events or another. I love that, that we don't need the immediate answer right then and there. Well, of course, you know, if we get to the point where we are suspecting that it's a seizure, we want to do as much as we can to try to confirm or at least boost our confidence that this was indeed a seizure event. So do you have a list of must ask questions that we should talk to the owner about to help narrow these things down? Yeah, absolutely. You have that option when an owner says, my dog had a seizure last night to, to let them describe it. And as we say, maybe that's a great description and, and your job is done. However, sometimes you're still left wondering what exactly did they see? So to try to, to get that a little bit more objective, we have five questions that we usually will ask and they won't, they won't each one on their own won't necessarily define a seizure, but they'll come together to help you be more comfortable. Confident. So we would start with what was the dog or cat doing at the onset of the event? And if it's a seizure, the majority are resting or sleeping. There's no precipitating event, no activity, no excitement, that sort of thing. Next, about the event itself, we want to see whether the owner spotted any rigidity of the limbs. Um, increased muscle tone is a key factor for seizures. So something that will help differentiate that from syncope, something that will help differentiate it from narcolepsy. So we're going to go with increased muscle tone um, being a key factor to try to identify. Uh, we also want during the event, the owner to tell us, did the dog or cat respond to you? If they say yes, there was some response, or even they could stop the event by talking to the dog, that's not a seizure. 
that seizure activity is involuntary, can't be stopped. If they could talk to the dog and they feel it's gotten, getting some response, maybe a movement disorder. If they feel they can stop the event by talking to the dog, that may be more of a behavioral disorder. We want to know about autonomic issues during the event as well. So did the dog salivate, urinate, defecate during the event, which can occasionally happen with a syncope, but pushes it more towards the realm of a seizure. And then finally, we want to know what was the dog or cat like when the event seemed to stop, because this is where we're looking for that post-ictal period where there may be confusion, blindness, drunkenness with, with the dog or cat, which wouldn't really be seen with any of the other events, uh, syncope, narcolepsy, movement disorders, behavioral abnormalities. They usually are going to come out of these quite quickly. So those would be our five questions. What happened before? And then was there an increase of muscle tone? Did the dog or cat respond to you? Uh, was the urination salivation? And then what happened right at the end? Dr. Platt, I'm loving this. I feel like you're giving us this great little toolkit of how to approach these discussions with owners because, you know, of course, keeping in mind, there can be a lot of nuance here. That jumping off point can be hard because there are all of these uncertainties. So, you know, kind of our our list of the mimics and the five questions, I think is just gold. Thank you so much. No problem. It's my pleasure. We, we all deal with these cases and they're very frustrating. So for me, I need to try and make them as simple as possible. And so this is what we're talking about now. <laughs> you are succeeding. I don't know if you can see me over here with like my pen where I'm going, hang on, I got to write this down real quick. I'm going to need this. Oh. Well, if we're talking to the owner and based on their description, we're starting to feel more confident that this is a seizure. What sort of causes should we consider and how do we differentiate these? I know one of the things that can become a barrier is cost of diagnostics. So, you know, kind of what's your approach there and um, can we rule out some of these causes without doing a whole lot of testing? Yeah, it is important to try to help the owners understand that if we are comfortable it's a seizure, then we're all of a sudden thinking about a brain disease and that can be obviously horrifying for the for the owner but we can calm the situation down a little bit by by making it clear that the most common cause of seizures in cats and dogs is the so-called idiopathic epilepsy and in dogs that that tends to mean that you've got a genetic abnormality a chemical abnormality with no real structural changes in the brain with cats with most of them not being purebred then it's rarely a genetic thing but there's no still no structural cause no one just just as in most cat medicine, no one really knows what is going on. And so we still call it idiopathic, but at least half, if not 60% of cats, half of dogs will have this idiopathic focus. And because it's a chemical abnormality, there will be no abnormality on the neuro exam. There's no structural abnormalities that we'll pick up, and that's what we'll use. So if you are a few hours out of the, the actual seizure event, if not a day or so, you should expect to see a normal neurological exam with an idiopathic case. If you get neurologic abnormalities of any shape or form, so any, either any weakness, uh, any failure to correct the digits if you turn the feet over, uh, any cranial nerve abnormalities, if you get any abnormalities on the neurological exam, however comfortable or not you are with doing that exam, then that starts to suggest you've got a structural problem that, that is causing the seizure. And that could be of the structural disorders we see, that could be a tumor or inflammation or a stroke, 
hydrocephalus, those sort of things. Unfortunately, those would require imaging or a spinal tap to get to the bottom of, of the situation. Um, but it at least starts to get you close to saying, well, this is not as good news. We also will use age to help us with that as well, because idiopathic epilepsy tends to be seen first when your dog or cat is less than six years of age. Maybe between six months and six years is our kind of prime time for, for idiopathic epilepsy. If a dog is four or five years of age, doesn't mean it hasn't got inflammation, for instance, or a tumor, but certainly number one at that time would be an idiopathic focus. And with dogs, the other aspect we look at is, are you a pure breed? Because if you're a genetic disease, most often you're a purebred. So we'll look to see you're a purebred, you have no neurologic abnormalities, you're between six months and six years. That really tells me to suspect idiopathic epilepsy. And then I tell the owner, Again, we haven't got a crystal ball. I can't tell you for sure without an MRI, but I'm more comfortable that this situation says you have idiopathic disease. Other causes of seizures can be systemic, so-called reactive epilepsy, where you've got a liver problem or glucose problem, electrolyte problems, or even intoxication. And so we would always recommend, especially if there are any general health problems that are ongoing, or the dog's been an outdoor dog and they don't know about access to toxins, we would always recommend a general blood panel. So we would do a CBC and chemistry, maybe your analysis. And if a push, if we thought there was a more serious systemic disease, then maybe we would think about imaging the thorax and abdomen, looking a little bit further for organ disease, and maybe even bile acid assessment for liver function. So those would be the things that kind of easier go-to tests, a little cheaper, obviously, than MRI and CSF tap and gets us a bit more confident. And, and that's that's what it's going to be about, really improving our confidence. If we have a two-year-old golden retriever coming into us who has been generally healthy and had a seizure last night and on neurological exam is normal, I'm going to say, I'm pretty sure that your dog has an idiopathic epilepsy. Again, can't tell you 100%, but would be pretty sure. Whereas that golden retriever turns up when you're 10 maybe with mild neuro deficits, maybe you're not confident about that, but I'm more now concerned. And if the owner said, should I work up or shouldn't I, that would be the one I would probably say, maybe we should run some tests to get a little bit further down the line. And that's the perfect example of a patient. That's the one I had in my head is that two-year-old golden retriever who comes in one seizure and the owners kind of want to know, you know, what is this, but more importantly, what do we do going forward? So when we're talking about medication for epilepsy or for seizure episodes in general, what is the indication to start medication? I mean, is it indicated after the first seizure or do you have kind of well-defined criteria of when to start medication in these guys? Yeah, um, that we do have these indications, but, but they're kind of moving goal lines or targets in a way, because we've always got an owner who thinks quite rightly that if my dog had one seizure last night, I want to do something about it. And if we're seen just to say, well, no, don't worry about it, then, then there's going to be a loss of confidence in the whole situation. So we have to explain to them that, that the decision-making is a fine balance between obviously treating a medical problem, but initiating lifelong medication. And so our criteria for starting these drugs needs to take into account this is for life. And what comes with that is obviously the expense, some labor intensity, and obviously side effects that each of these drugs is going to have. So 
we'll talk about a frequency as an indicator to start medication. Once you get to an established frequency of more than one a month, definitely more than one every three months, we would say, I think you're going to need lifelong treatment unless you've got an underlying systemic health issue, metabolic problem, or a toxic exposure, we're going to go with lifelong. So that would be the, the main criteria, but we'll also look at severity. So if the seizure itself was more than five or 10 minutes long, then that starts to make us concerned about status epilepticus. It could still be an idiopathic case, but status epilepticus is an indication for lifelong therapy. Again, if you don't have systemic or toxic etiologies. And then we also look at patients that have cluster seizures. So that's a, a patient who has more than a couple of seizures in 24 hours. If you have that type of frequency at onset, then that's going to make us say, well, you're probably going to need lifelong therapy. This is all in discussion with the owner. And, and if we're comfortable that it's not a, a systemic disease, it's not an intoxication. We're probably looking to, to start medication sooner rather than later on a long-term basis. And, and that's, it's, it's key to getting control of the seizures is, is trying to get ahead of them. If we let them set into a pattern or a frequency, then it's going to be playing catch up all the time. And that is really tough to try to then get on top of if that's, uh, if that's in front of us now. That makes sense. And let me just make sure I understood what you said as far as frequency, because I think you said when you get into a frequency of more than one a month, and I think you followed that with definitely more than one every three months. Yeah, um, so that would be that. that uh, sorry, I should, should have said that the other way around. Like, um, definitely one a month. That would that's our cutoff. That's too much. We some people might talk about a frequency of one every three months, and that's where we'll get into a discussion with the owner. Certainly, there's a medical indication. The more seizures you have, the more you're going to have. But one every three months, we might just say, okay, we could just watch this. If it starts to increase, then definitely we will get you on medication. Anything more than that becomes a bit tough. If you've got a dog having a seizure every six months, then if the next time he has it, it's in five months, is that because the medication helped or was that just going to, because he was going to have another seizure at that time? So the pattern also helps with understanding whether the drugs you're using are effective or not. So kind of talking to the owner too, maybe about journaling and, and keeping a, an idea of what the frequency and what the pattern are for their pet. Yeah, absolutely. We need that objective assessment of, of before medication, but definitely after medication, how many seizures are happening, how are they separated in time and, and how long are the individual seizures. Perfect. Perfect. And when we're considering, we say, okay, I think it's time to start medication based on these indications. What is your first line drug or, or probably better to ask, how do you choose your first line drugs? You know, as far as the pros and cons of each one. Yeah, it's a really important question because we're always looking for that gold standard and we now have several options. So what do we look for in these drugs that says this is the right one for the, for the dog? And at this time, we are picking and choosing based on factors. Uh, there isn't one drug that we'll 100% of the time always go to. But having said that, we will look at how efficacious is the drug, just how successful in idiopathic epileptic dogs, for instance, 
instance, is an individual drug. And there is variability there between the drugs, uh, with phenobarbital being obviously the one that stands out up to 90% of dogs and cats will have a response, positive response to the use of that drug. So efficacy definitely is a big factor. We're going to weigh against that, though, the adverse effects. Some of these newer drugs have less concern in terms of their adverse effects. Uh, some of them, like bromide, have relatively no adverse effects besides a bit of sedation and ataxia. And so we, we, we're we going to look at the adverse effects. And then when we talk about phenobar, we have probably the the greatest group, um, largest group of, of adverse effects that, that we could expect with a drug. And that will scare us off using it. But we have to recognize that we're balancing everything out. If we want to use it because it's most successful, we're probably going to have to just do a few more tests throughout the course of the treatment to make sure that these side effects aren't occurring or aren't sneaking up as, on us as an individual dog. In addition to that, we want to know, well, how quickly does it work? Some of the new drugs may work in a day or two. Phenobarb may take two, three weeks to, to get to consistent levels. And something like bromide may take about three months to get there. So we're looking for how flexible an, an individual drug is. And we can bypass that time period with loading the dose if we felt that bromide, for instance, was a great drug to use in this individual case because it doesn't go through the liver, it's low toxic profile, then we want to bypass that three months by load dosing them, by giving them a higher dose up front over three or four days. And then all of a sudden, they are at what's called steady state, which is consistent level for that drug, and we can start to rely on it. So we've got efficacy, we have side effect profile, we have how quickly do you get effect with the drug. We've also got how easy is it to dose. Some of the new drugs uh, are three times a day, maybe four times a day, actually, based on how quickly they're metabolized versus, say, bromide once a day, phenobarb twice a day. Um, so that's that's got to be taken into account, as has the last factor, cost. Thankfully, most of them have kind of, are kind of reasonably similar now. Uh, you have to shop around for some of them to try to get the best deal, but cost is always going to be a factor. And, and on a monthly basis, that can soon add up to, to be a, a big decision-making factor. Absolutely. And sometimes we'll, we'll choose our first line drug based on all of the criteria that you're listing and it doesn't pan out. You know, maybe we do get side effects. The owner's not comfortable with the level of sedation or finds that they can't dose with the recommended frequency and things like that. So if your first choice isn't panning out, how do you choose a second line drug? What are those secondary considerations? Similar, although we will look at whether there's any any concerns, interactions. So for instance, if we've used phenobarb and then we go to use levetiracetam or Keppra, that's a drug which needs a higher dose in the presence of phenobarb because it's metabolized very quickly. Whereas using, using bromide, you're not going to really need that. And we also look for a bit of synergism. So we know that bromide uh, is very synergistic with phenobarb. And so about 80% of patients that aren't controlled on phenobarb will be captured by bromide. So we look for that. And, and overall, we try to look at the additive of, uh, effects to the dog and the owner's life. So how many more times are they going to need to treat with a certain medication during the day? What are the cumulative side effects that we may, that we may see? 
but we still have all of the options in front of us and just see which one we go to next. Obviously, with efficacy still being at the forefront of our of our minds. And I kind of, you know, phrase that as, you know, if, if your first drug isn't panning out, what do we go to next? But I love your answer there as far as, you know, what drug do we add in to make sure we're controlling this dog's seizures? And hopefully we can be kind of side effect sparing if that's the concern with the first one. Yeah. And, and some of those side effects can be cumulative. And so if, if you've got a dog on phenobarb who's already drinking a lot and urinating a lot throughout the night, there's a huge quality of life concern for the dog, for the owner. And so then we need to make sure that the next drug we use isn't going to actually exacerbate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the dog that maybe we've chosen not to medicate or who maybe even is medicated and is having seizures at home. What are the best options for maybe at-home treatment of acute seizures? Yeah, that is a frustration for many owners is they, they're obviously going to be concerned about the seizures that are happening in front of them. Does that translate into a frequent veterinary visit and the costs that are associated with that? And by no means would anything we suggest be an attempt to avoid veterinary attention, but it may help them through a crisis point. It may also actually just re- reduce the follow-on seizures that the dog or cat may experience and make them safe to travel because if they're seizuring, that's, that's not the best sort of situation to be putting the dog in the car and traveling 30 minutes or more. So we look at several options. There's a drug called clorazepate that we could use at the time of a seizure at home or, or just following it when it's safe to administer an oral medication. And we use that over a two to three day period. It's a it's a long-acting benzodiazepine and something which uh, has powerful anticonvulsant strength. It's also quite a strong sedative as well, but it will help with the follow-on seizures. So if a dog is known to have several seizures when it has one, then the owner may say, okay, after that first one, once it's safe, we can get this clarazepate on board. It may start to uh, help disperse those those seizures that that they usually see as a follow-on. As an alternative to that, maybe less sedative, we've also started using what's called pulse dose Kepra or levotorestam and uh, levotorestam then can be given at quite a high dose up front at 60 or 60 mg per kg. And that's something which uh, will then be followed up with a 20 to 30 milligram per kilogram dose every eight hours. Using that again for two to three days, whether they're on it or not, we're giving this as a type of crisis management, a pulse dosing to get you through that period. Now, if it doesn't work, then you say, okay, surely we, we're going to need some veterinary attention at this time. There, there are other options which uh, are a bit more tricky to consider, and those are the use of intranasal or perectal benzodiazepines. So they can be formulated. Compounding pharmacies can make up gels, for instance, suppositories, which can be used for intranasal and, and perectal use. Many owners are going to have a little bit of a mindset maybe that says, I'm not really that comfortable with dosing my dog like this. And it may be difficult to to know that they're getting the whole drug. A chihuahua with seizures with intranasal midazolam, for instance, may be a challenge for the owner to actually medicate. And so these are options for the at the time of a seizure uh, therapy. So 
obviously we're not going to give an owner an injection to give the the dog, but giving them a per rectal treatment or intranasal treatment may actually stop the seizure or by, or realistically by the time they've actually got it all set up, slow down any follow on seizures that that they're going to have just more of a challenge. And sometimes if I'm going to be honest, we'll pick our owners to say that, okay, you may be able to help with this and we're going to have to go through some training with them. This is what you need to do at the time. So that they've got it, they've got it ready and they're they're not going to be on the phone saying what was it that we were meant to do because obviously that going to defeat the purpose really at the time of a crisis <laughs> by the time you get off the phone the seizures wrapping up and yeah <laughs> missed, missed our window there I actually didn't even know that intranasal was an option yeah and you can get pharmacies to put it into a, an, a gel which they can use an atomizer with just a small device that will hook onto the top of a syringe and if you can get it near the nose at the time of a seizure or probably again realistically at the end of a seizure then uh, you can actually uh, look to get some substance in there and intranasal deliveries is a rapid way to get drug to the brain it just really bypasses the blood brain barrier and the absorption that that takes place in the nasal mucosa is is very high interesting interesting and what about when we're managing our seizure patients what about using adjunctive therapies i mean i know there's some nutritional considerations when it comes to seizures and i'm thinking of some other things like acupuncture and cbd Actually, a colleague of mine had a dog who responded well to acupuncture. I think it was like a staple just placed in the right spot. And, you know, of course, when we're in the exam room with the owner, we get the CBD questions. So do you have any thoughts on the use of adjunctive therapies in managing seizure patients? Yeah, this is a big area of conversation and many owners have done their own research of, of varying standards by the time they've come to see us. But um, it, it, it's a, it is an important aspect because certainly just relying on drugs is probably a, a little bit antiquated now. I mean, the approach to seizures in people is a, is a more holistic view where you've got to focus on your general health and any issues that you, that you, that you have should be addressed and they'll make the the drugs for the seizures actually be potentially a bit more efficacious. But your your nutrition is also addressed as a person because there are some valuable supplements within the diet that can help seizures. So in general, fats, particularly medium chain triglycerides, will reduce seizure thresholds. And there is at least one commercial diet that's out there that can help with as an adjunctive therapy for seizures because of its content of medium chain triglycerides. These come from coconut oil. And so now there's a lot of research about giving just straight up coconut oil or a formulation of coconut oil. Now, at this stage, we don't know what formulation we should give. We don't know the dose. But the future is is going to certainly contain this type of advice where we're going to add in a dietary supplement. There are things out there on the market that say, we've got the, a seizure cure for you and it contains a, a fat type element. Probably no research has been done and we always got to focus on how safe it is. And that's why we'll always go with something that's more commercially available and tried and tested like the diet. But that, that's a that's a big focus for us is, is use of diet. And then acupuncture, as you say, uh, another good adjunctive approach, well used in people. There's a lot of science behind its use. Nothing really in the way of a clinical trial at this stage, but there are a couple of acupoints for, for epilepsy that someone who is trained in that area, who's experienced in that area, could duly manage the case with, with you and help out by 
putting the dog through through acupuncture, sometimes temporary, sometimes more of on a permanent basis with insertion of gold beads, a bit out of my wheelhouse, really. So we always get someone who's who's got training in that area, expertise in that area to to say, let's let's work together. And then the other yeah, CBD question is always forefront right now. And, and it's tough for us as veterinarians because obviously there are legal issues in what we can advise. So the take home message at this stage is that the CBD product that has minimal to no THC or the psychoactive component in it may have a future in, in many disease treatments, but certainly in epilepsy, there are receptors in the brain for CBD and they can reduce the seizure threshold. There's been some small trials in dogs that have shown that there is potential there. Nothing at this stage that says this is the definite way forward, but it, it could be a very useful adjunct. Again, we're not sure of the dose. We're not sure whether it should be given with a certain type of diet. We're not sure of interactions with other drugs. And so there's a lot to learn, which makes us a little bit cautious. In addition to the legal aspect, we're a bit cautious about how to, to move forward with this. Um, the problem, obviously, is that many owners will just go ahead and treat their dog out of the frustration of having a dog that has multiple seizures. And we're not saying that's wrong, but it does challenge us really because not knowing the interactions with the drugs that we're going to more standardly use may create a, a problem. But again, that's that's uh, for us to find out in the future. Sure. And and I have to go back to the, the dietary considerations for just a second, but sure. coconut oil. Yeah. Um, well, well, I obviously, went, oh the, man, <laughs> all yeah. the times I've heard coconut oil. Yeah. Well, obviously the, um, the uh, use of a commercial, well-made, appropriately dosed diet is is ideal, but the main constituent of the diet that is successful and that, that reduces seizures is, is this medium chain triglyceride, and it, and it is derived from coconut oil. And so, I'm not suggesting go out and give your dogs coconut oil right now because we don't know the dose, the formulation, that that sort of thing. But there is now actually research going ahead on the use of coconut oil in dogs for seizures as an adjunct set therapy. And um, so watch this space type of thing. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to stay tuned to that one because that was, that was a surprise for me to hear. Really interesting. You've obviously got to get them to eat it, I suppose, as well. That's the big problem with these sure. nutritional things. Some of them say, yeah, you've got everything you need in one diet. Well, if, if, if you're not going to eat it or you're not going to eat the coconut oil, then, then that's a problem up front. Absolutely. Absolutely. The perfect diet, except for no one will eat it. True um, story. Well, Dr. Platt, this has been fantastic. I've been just like, you know, scribbling away all these notes here because like I said, I think you've just given us a great toolbox of how to approach that suspect seizure event and differentiate it and kind of where to go next and, and walking us through it. So thank you so much for all of the information. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. It has come out of years of dealing with seizure dogs and cats where, where we've had so many frustrations and trying to break it down in, into a step-by-step -step approach has worked best for me. So hopefully there's something in there that people can, can pick out and, and benefits their day-to-day -day practice. Absolutely. I think there, there definitely will be. We appreciate you letting us learn from your frustrations. Great. Yes. If I can be of any help at all, I will teach you from my failures and frustrations. <laughs> oh, well, we definitely appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Then. 
Dr. Platt, thank you so much for all of the wonderful information. I also want to say a big thank you to PRN for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for joining us. If you'd like to find out more about this and other podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.